0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, the Solomon Islands PM calls on the United Nations to deal with human rights issues in West Papua.
2: We also agreed to request the associate member to allow the visit of the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner to Indonesia...
1: Also, we explore if PNG's move to open an embassy in Jerusalem could inspire other Pacific nations to do the same, and scientists uncover nuclear contamination in the shells of sea turtles. All that and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans. Thanks for joining me. But first, Papua New Guinea's head of prisons is appealing to relatives and friends of 42 prison escapees in the country's Southern Highlands province on Sunday to return to prison. Five prisoners were shot dead after 47 prisoners took, to, took a church pastor and warden hostage during a jailbreak. 42 are on the run, but it wasn't the only jailbreak that took place at the weekend. Prisons Commissioner Stephen Pocanis explained to Caroline Tiriman how the event unfolded.
3: A total of uh, 47 uh, prisoners um, made their way or escaped out from uh, from lawful custody. Uh, by doing so, um, uh, initially there was a church service that was conducted inside a, a prison facility, and one of the only one, one lone pastor came for a church service. And after the church service, uh, as they were about to close the service, and uh, well, they had closed the service. And when the pastor was about to leave the dormitory uh, walking towards the uh, the gate uh, that um, is inside the, the facility and escorted by the lone uh, duty water who was with him uh, some of the prisoners and I'm putting some because I we cannot quantify how many <clears throat> they, they help both uh, the pastor and the the officer uh, hostage and they dragged them out uh, they also helped um, um offensive weapons also with them, um objects, iron objects. Um they were holding that and <clears throat> they took the two um, gentlemen out from the prison and right out into the prison the uh perimeter fence. uh waters who were on duty at the time um, were not able to do anything. Uh, one is because of um, coming to the two uh pastor and the owner and secondly um the prison is just close to Neighbouring villages were surrounded surround, uh, their homes uh, around the perimeter of the prison, which is about 10 to 15 metres away. Uh, because of the uh, waters weren't able to do anything. They were just watching and monitoring and following them. So there's a, uh, at the back of the, uh, the uh, Buiwi prison is uh, uh, bushes uh, going up the hill and uh, mountain towards uh, Mount Kilue. <clears throat> so the prisoners uh, took cover and ran uh, that way, and uh, in apprehending them, uh, officers shot uh, for of them. They are now deceased, while one was recaptured. Uh, the 42 um, male prisoners are still uh, on the run. So those, that is the uh, update on the escape at the um, behavioral correctional institution in the Southern Islands province
0: so what's the story with the pastor and the person who was with the pastor
3: the water uh, the duty officer who was with the pastor is okay um uh, the pastor is also okay the pastor is from that local uh, area he's from the village just the, uh, adjacent to the prison facility um he's also okay uh, what we uh, have experienced and uh, picking up from uh, reports we are getting uh, directly from the prison is that there is a high threat uh, because of the loss of the four prisoners um, from their relatives. So we are monitoring that and uh, beefing up security. Um, <clears throat> within uh, today and tomorrow, we'll be moving officers down uh, to reinforce the manpower on the ground.
0: Commissioner Stephen Pokanis, now this is not the first time that uh, prisoners have been shot dead, um, you know, while escaping, and some people would say or are concerned that uh, that too many prisoners are being killed um, while while trying to escape. What uh, would you say about these? Concerns.
3: Yeah, um, the views uh, and perceptions from citizens, uh, locally and internationally, uh, based on their um, uh, beliefs, based on their moral um, uh, position, based on law and etc., uh, would have their own uh, opinions. Um, for us. Um, what well, I can say is that every country uh, uh, have um, behavior of their people uh, who react uh, quite differently from other countries, and for Papua New Guinea, um, to allow prisoners going out back into the society, we uh, would have would expect more um, damage uh, in terms of loss of lives, in terms of Harm to women, to uh, children, to adults. Harm to business people. Uh, there is a lot uh, of that on our shoulders. So, um, <clears throat> we we try as best uh, in terms of following our protocol, uh, and every prisoner who attends uh, who ends up in our prison are always informed of circumstances um, that would take place if they escape from lawful custody. So what uh, for what is to Institutions warning shots were fired. Uh, Officers uh, gave command for the prisoners to to stop and to uh, surrender. Um, That was not possible. So, in many of the uh, escapes that have took place um, in the history of Botswana Correctional Service, not all prisoners surrender when you make the first command or call for them to surrender. When you also uh, give warning shots. To inform them that the next shot will be at you, they do not stop as well. So um, that's what we do. We know that um, international um, uh, laws, um, the UN uh, rights of our prisoners, we understand that. But the fear of more escalation of violence out in the society, I think it's more uh, serious uh, than that we try as best to, to do what we can to apprehend uh, our prisoners the best that we can.
0: Okay, Um, Commissioner Pokanis, and what's the story in Simbu with the escapees?
3: Again on the same day and um, almost the same, uh, a few minutes apart, uh, we had 10 um, male remand uh, uh, detainees who made their way uh, they escaped. but uh, eight of them were apprehended by the local uh, villagers um, close to the um, to the prison. Uh, they they held them and they they captured them and then brought them back to the prison. So these eight uh, unfortunately were also wounded by the local um, villagers. So all of them are uh, uh, hospitalized at Kundiawa, um Hospital. Uh, out of the ten, two are still on the run.
0: Are there anything you would like to say, or is there anything you would like to say to people who might know or have seen some of the escapes?
3: To the immediate families, relatives, and uh, friends, um, to our leaders, um, and the local uh, community, even pastors, um, I strongly encourage them to to talk to this. any one of these prisoners who are on the run, uh, if they uh, come across them, uh, talk to them, counsel them. Um, <clears throat> for those who are convicted, uh, they can still come back and uh, complete their their prison terms and then go back. Uh, for those who are still waiting for their cases before the national courts, so they can also return. Um, there is no way of um, for them to Rest for them to live a normal life. Uh, if they continue running like this, um, they they can be on the run today. Uh, the law will still catch up with them. Uh, there, there is it, it is not a probability; it is possible possible that they can end up losing their lives as well while whilst they are out on the run. So I would strongly encourage them to surrender back uh, to police uh, to correctional officers, but they had to come back.
1: PNG's Correctional Service Commissioner Stephen Pokana speaking there with Caroline Terimin The Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Meneses Sogavare, says human rights issues in West Papua should be dealt with by the United Nations and not regional bodies. It comes after leaders at the Melanesian Spearhead Group denied a membership bid by the United Liberation Movement for West Papua at its annual meeting. Sogavare explained the decision to reporters at a press conference in Hodiara.
2: MSG leaders uh, uh, reaffirm the, the sovereignty of Indonesia over West Papua. However, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we mandated the uh, secretariat to explore ways on on how MSG can establish close collaboration with the government of Indonesia by uh, leveraging the the special uh, autonomous arrangements to draw a special focus on uh, social uh, economic uh, development of Indonesia's West uh, Papua and Papuan provinces we also agreed to request the associate member to allow the visit of the united nations human rights uh, rights commissioner to uh, to indonesia to have the commissioner's uh, report on human rights uh, uh west papua delivered uh, for the next uh, msg summit in 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 2024 leaders uh, also mandated the msg secretariat to explore trade arrangement with uh, uh, the Indonesian government. On uh, uh, West Papua human rights issues, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in uh, uh, Indonesia's West Papua, embassy uh, leaders acknowledge that the uh, most appropriate body to deal with all matters of human right, uh, rights matters is the United Nations through the United Nations Human Rights Council. We also urge the Pacific Islands Forum and the Melanesian Speared Group Secretariat to call on the United Nations Human Rights, Human Rights Commissioner to visit Indonesia's West Papua and Papuan region.
1: That was Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Minister Sogavare, and thanks to Tuvalu News for the audio. You're
4: listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Scientists have discovered nuclear contamination in the shells of turtles in the Marshall Islands, suggesting they may have survived 20th century nuclear testing. The United States conducted more than 20 nuclear tests in the country during the middle of the century, and decades on, scientists have studied the impact of that testing on sea turtles. Lead researcher Dr. Sila Conrad joins us now to discuss the study. Dr. Conrad, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Not a problem. Now, before we get into the turtles that you researched in the Marshall Islands, could you please first tell us about Bert, the animated turtle used in a US military educational film? Because I understand he's relevant to all this. Yes, that's correct. Uh, in
5: early, in the early 1950s, there was a US Civil Defense Administration Film that was uh, the goal was to essentially teach children, teach the public about how to p- potentially survive a nuclear blast uh, within the United States, and and Bert the turtle was used as a type of metaphor for ducking and covering, and so Bert would kind of retract his head and arms and legs into his shell and. Uh, theoretically survive this nuclear blast and so uh, this animated birth the turtle really in many ways functioned as an excellent analogy for some of the research and results that we were able to find.
1: Yeah, there's quite, quite a bit of irony in that, given your research highlights that Bert's uh, fictional experience was in some ways uh, true, that turtles, tortoises and sea turtles' lives may have in fact survived the effects uh, of nuclear events. Um, but it also found that a record uh, of, of this nuclear activity is present and measurable uh, within these same animals long after its first exposure. Um, so yeah, what, what did your research find?
5: Yeah, we were really... Uh, quite shocked and surprised uh, by the results that we were able to obtain from this research. And uh, one of the key concepts is that turtles and ter- tortoises and sea turtles, they grow that colorful material on the top of their shells. It's called scoot keratin. It's very similar to human fingernails and toenails, that same type of tissue. And they grow that tissue on their shells sequentially over time, very similar to trees and tree rings. And what we were able to do is fine turtles in natural history museum collections that had been collected from areas with past and legacy nuclear activity during the 20th century. And we were able to take individual samples from those scoot layers, those growth layers uh, on the shell and and pick up very trace amounts, very small amounts, but diagnostic uh, elements and isotopes that told us something about the past nuclear activity at those sites, especially within the Marshall Islands, nuclear testing, above-ground nuclear testing, and and other types of uh, accidental waste streams and uh, other types of contamination events within nuclear processing sites.
1: So does that suggest that they were present or or close to the area where these nuclear tests were were taking place, what, back in the 50s and 60s?
5: Correct. Yep, exactly. And we found... uh, Both types of records. And what I mean by that is we found turtles that clearly lived through active contamination in the environment. Uh, These were turtles and tortoises that would have been accumulating this contamination in real time during their life. But also in the Marshall Islands uh, in particular, we found a sea turtle that we studied where its contamination record appeared in its shell uh, at least 20 years after above ground testing had ended. And so this told us something about perhaps the legacy of that contamination in the environment and some ideas about the potential routing of that contamination into the sea turtle from uh, its diet, from the environment. And so we were able to pick up both sort of in real time and that that legacy contamination into these animals.
1: That is truly, truly wild stuff. Now, turtles and and tortoises typically live for for a very long time. Uh, Has this contamination impacted their lives at all? Or could you find anything like that?
5: Yeah, that's a great question and, and one that we get quite often. Uh, uh, the answer is no. Uh, there's really no uh, clear evidence for any type of health impact to the turtles or tortoises at the time that they accumulated uh, uh, this contamination and these, these anthropogenic radionuclides. But uh, what we're able to identify is that the radionuclides themselves, so the the elements, the isotopes that these nuclear events put out into the environment they're very diagnostic and, and distinct, and the sensitivity of the instrumentation today allows us to measure these in very finite, very, very small uh, quantities and very, very small levels. And so we're able to pick up these trace signals within the turtle's scoot keratin, uh, but these are very small amounts, uh, smaller than uh, often what's out there in the natural, uh, essentially background environment today from things like global fallout from uh, the 20th century above ground tests. And so we don't believe that there was any health impact to the actual animal itself, but uh, that doesn't, you know, it it still means that the animal was picking up these very, very small quantities of, of that contamination out there in the environment and it's recorded in its tissues.
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable, the the resilience, uh, particularly. Uh, You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans, and I'm chatting with Dr. Sila Conrad, whose research has uncovered nuclear contamination uh, in the shells of sea turtles decades after being exposed to uh, nuclear tests uh, in the Marshall Islands. Uh, Now, Dr. Conrad, what inspired uh, this research? Yeah, uh, I'm an
5: archaeologist by training, and I really have just a, a deep interest in understanding the human relationship with turtles through time. I just think they're quite interesting animals. They, they have such a long evolution in sort of our, our, our concept of time and, and their evolution through time. Uh, and humans have been interacting with turtles and tortoises uh, in the, nearly every location around the world where turtles and humans overlap. And this has been consistent for uh, gosh, thousands and thousands of years, especially through the Pleistocene and Holocene. So I've been quite interested in turtles and I was able to collaborate with my colleagues at Los Alamos National Laboratory and, and, and work out this sort of unique characteristic and, and, uh, component of their growth, which is this scoot keratin that grows on their shell and the way that it grows very similar to tree rings. And, uh, it was sort of from, from this interest in trying to understand these long-term human interactions with turtles and their environments. That led us to trying to apply this technique to study nuclear events, nuclear contamination in the environment. And it, it was a really interesting collaboration, and, and we're continuing to work on turtles and these similar types of questions.
1: I'm, I'm interested to know, did, did you expect to find uh, nuclear contamination or, or did it come as a complete surprise? Uh,
5: this was a surprise for us, especially for some of the turtles, uh, for example, from the Marshall Islands, from Inuitok you know, Atoll, uh, the green sea turtle that we studied. You know, it was collected in 1978. This was 20 years after above ground testing ended in the Marshall Islands, and uh, we were quite surprised. We did not anticipate that there would be these these signatures in the turtles so many decades after testing ended. And what this really speaks to, I believe, is the sensitivity again of the instrumentation, being able to test and measure these isotopes and elements within different tissues, and this is quite consistent around the world. Once you start to look for these types of uh human signatures in the environment they're they're certainly there and uh uh, it's quite clear that uh, um uh that those records are present in a variety of of different animals and organisms and so we were we were surprised we thought we might have some luck uh, especially picking up a fallout signal but we were quite surprised that each of these turtles from nuclear sites or in areas where fallout occurred for example in in southwest utah Uh, They all had these very distinct records of of anthropogenic radionuclides and this human-nuclear relationship.
1: Yeah, and you touched on it a little bit with that answer, but does it make you wonder, you know, what other parts of the marine ecosystem or even other animals, uh, you know, have been impacted by nuclear testing?
5: Uh, Yes, uh, correct. We think about that quite a lot, Uh, especially in trying to understand... You know, we we know today the legacies of nuclear testing. We know the the legacies of uh, of nuclear activities in the environment. Uh, today, we have a much better understanding and and management. I think of those activities, and so we're really curious and in, in thinking about ways in which we can we can measure animals in the environment, other organisms, plants, for example, uh, and really try and reconstruct the specific relationship between different types of elements like uranium or plutonium how that moved through the environment, where it was deposited, uh, and even questions saying like, how could it become remobilized with climate change and uh, uh, different questions like that. And so we're really interested in lots of different animals, especially animals that grow sequential tissues like mollusks, uh, bivalves, for example, uh, even bird feathers, different things like that, where you might have the the physiological and and biological uh, uh, elements there, especially that growth over time sequentially. Uh, and so we have a lot of questions about well what could we apply to study and how can we how can we pick up different records of uh, sort of human signatures in the environment whether they be nuclear or otherwise and how can we reconstruct past activities using these animals essentially as these time stamped um, um, very interesting sort of collections that tell us something about our past relationship with the environment
1: yeah, so it sounds like that this research project is going to have uh, some legacy benefits going forward in the sense that it, it's obviously going to inspire, um, you know, more more projects and research, yeah, in the future. Is that fair to say?
5: Yes, yeah, we hope so. We hope that uh, this inspires research around the world and and we certainly hope and, and are continuing to work with other turtle samples, but we hope it inspires some more work uh, of our own and, and our colleagues in this world. So uh, we're quite excited by that.
1: Now we know that people in the Pacific rely heavily uh, on the sea as a source of food, and, and some cre- um, some cultures actually eat sea turtles, and some animals do as well. Um, would humans be at risk if they consumed, you know, turtles that had potentially been uh, been touched by by nuclear contamination?
5: Yeah, that's another good question. Uh, and so. From what we can tell from these trace levels and the turtle samples that we studied, again, these very, very small, minuscule amounts, uh, there would be no no effect, uh, no impact, no risk, essentially, from uh, uh, sort of consuming these animals or even today if those animals are used. I know that um, uh, for indigenous populations, uh, sea turtles are quite important and other other types of turtles and tortoises are quite important Um so that is something that we're constantly aware of and trying to understand this. And if we look in the literature, we see that there's a lot of research trying to trying to understand what types of animals and what types of environments, for example, uh, cesium contamination, a wild boar from Europe, uh, from fallout associated with Chernobyl, uh, things like that, where there's this constant attempt to try and understand how these radionuclides and contaminants are being deposited into the environment and what type of risk that might have. But for our samples, it's such a trace amount, it is possible that uh, and very likely that other types of animals, including humans, have these very, very, very small trace amounts already present uh, in their tissues. And this is just this legacy, kind of this global legacy of of that fallout from the 20th century.
1: Yeah, you, you mentioned Chernobyl. I remember watching that TV show about uh, four or five years ago now, and that really sparked a huge interest and, and led me to, to deep dive uh, about all things related to uh, to nuclear testing. Um, Dr. Silat, last question uh, before we go. You know what's uh, what's the future have in store for your research team now? I mean, what's what's the next animal that you, you'll potentially look into into researching?
5: Uh, yes, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and I sort of gave you a preview. We're we're quite interested in mollusks uh, and other types of aquatic organisms, especially because uh, these ocean systems and, and understanding uh, how different types of elements are moving through them is really quite important. I think this is something uh, you know, sort of humanity-wide where we're really interested in uh, global climate change and uh, and how we can use these marine environments to measure things sequentially and 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 build better data sets to model what might happen in the future. And so we're quite interested in uh, in mollusks and other types of marine organisms where we could examine nuclear records, but also other records that might tell us about climate change, environmental change, and, and other sort of trophic-scale relationships.
1: Uh, it's fascinating stuff. And, and yeah, look, we, we can't wait to see uh, what your future research uh, will uncover. Um, Dr. Sila, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, on Pacific Beat and good luck uh, with your future projects.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That was Dr. Sila Conrad, the lead researcher of a project that discovered nuclear contamination uh, within the shells of sea turtles.
3: Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. <laughs>
1: so emotional every time you go out there and you see the, you know, the national anthem.
3: And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes.
6: I've grown so much confidence within myself and i never thought I would be the player that I am today.
5: Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. G time on ABC Australia.
1: It's that time of the morning where we take a look at what's making headlines across the region, and joining us this morning to uh, to help us do that is ABC producer Evan Wasuka. Evan, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Kyle. Good to be here. Fantastic. Now, Vanuatu's political news has been making headlines uh, in, in recent weeks and days. We had the finance minister on yesterday. What's the latest out of Port Vila?
7: It's certainly interesting times in Vanuatu. Things are constantly changing every day. So... Where we are right now is that the Speaker of Parliament has appealed on behalf of the Prime Minister a Supreme Court ruling that said that the opposition was correct and that a vote of no confidence about two weeks ago, which the opposition won, counts as absolute majority. Now, the court has given the Prime Minister uh, time to uh, take this case into appeal. So the Prime Minister and is still in power. But, um, until that decision is made, we still have the uh, Ishmael Kasikow sitting there in an office and the court might convene sometime either later this week or next week. Now, the new news is that, according to the Daily Post newspaper, the opposition isn't content with the situation and apparently is going in uh, for the jugular and it's uh, looking to submit um, a motion of no confidence. So this will be another one. Uh, this will be the fourth motion um, against the Prime Minister. Now, that's not fully confirmed. Uh, the Daily Post is reporting through its sources that the fourth motion will depend on the return of MP Bruno Lencon who is set to return uh, back into Vanuatu after a medical treatment. Um, now, if you remember back with the previous motion, Mr. Lengong was the key person that they were hoping who could vote in from overseas, but that wasn't allowed uh, as it was unprocedural. Now, he's expected to be back in the country on Monday next week, and the motion is expected to be lodged sometime after that.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it truly is uh, crazy stuff. I remember Minister Salong yesterday uh, explaining a little bit about the frustration uh, of the constituents as this continues to unfold and uh, and yeah, it's not surprising. It does very much seem to be a never-ending saga. Now, moving on, last week activists in Suva staged a march to protest against the release of nuclear-treated wastewater at the Fukushima power plant in Japan, uh, but this may also have political ramifications. How is that?
7: That's right, Kyle. So, Fiji Prime Minister, City Ramboka. he's been very vocal in his support uh, for the release of the fukushima wastewater it's true that other pacific leaders are also backing this but he's been sort of like the beacon in terms of senior leaders who've thrown their support behind the japanese plan and their international atomic energy agency report which says it's safe now according to radio new zealand international um, although he has strongly supported this release other coalition partners within the government uh, don't feel the same way uh, about uh, the, the safety of the Fukushima uh, wastewater release. Now, as we know, the Fiji government is made up of three political parties. There's Rambuka's own People's Alliance Party, the National Federation Party, and the Social Democratic Liberal Party. Now, that's the party that's kind of holding things together. That's the difference that's keeping the the, the current government in place um so the th- this third party the social democratic liberal party uh William gavoka who is also deputy pm he's appealed to the Rambuka to change uh the government's stance on the fukushima uh, so he's been quite vocal about this mr gavoka says his party's youth wing is in serious opposition to this plan plan and they're concerned um about the Prime Minister's view, and the party intends to communicate their views directly to uh, Siti Venerambuka about uh, the whole situation with the Fukushima uh, wastewater release.
1: Yeah, it certainly has seemed to divide leaders within the Pacific, and that doesn't look likely to change uh, anytime soon. Uh, And lastly, Evan, here in Australia, it's the final week of winter, thank God, and there's going to be a uh, lunar spectacle.
7: Yeah, we're certainly all looking forward to warmer weather, Kyle. Um, And yes, And uh, Australia and much of the Pacific are going to be in for uh, uh, quite a sight uh, tonight. And throughout the rest of the week, uh, the ABC is reporting that a supermoon and a blue moon will occur at the same time. So a supermoon is when the moon is at its closest to the Earth and there's a full moon. And a blue moon is when there's a repeat of this uh, within the same uh, lunar, uh, in the same month. Now all this will come together tomorrow night. But according to the Perth Observatory, tonight will be a really will be the best time to observe the supermoon in Australia. So later this evening, uh, around dusk, when you look into the sky, you'll see the moon much larger than it really is, and this is an optical um, illusion. Now the Perth Observatory say it's going to be quite an impressive sight uh, out there tonight. But uh, Kyle, not so impressive will be parts of the Pacific, where the lunar when we get uh, the full moon, it also means king tides. Now, in Kiribati, the meteorological center there is warning that there'll be extreme king tides, mm. with tide levels of up to two meters uh, today, uh, tomorrow, and then again on Friday and Saturday. Now, the thing to keep in mind is about about Kiribati is that it's one of those low-lying atolls, so when the tide comes up, it's definitely felt by the community. Uh, so we'll be keeping in close. We'll be keeping in close touch with our reporter in Kiribati and find out what's. Uh, what the situation is like uh, throughout today and the rest of the week?
1: Yeah, look, let's hope they can get through get through unscathed. Uh, Evan, thank you for those uh, awesome stories today. Thank you, Kyle. That was Evan Wazuka joining us for News Wrap.
5: For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Well, a political scientist says Papua New Guinea's move to open an embassy in Jerusalem may influence other Pacific nations to recognise the city as well. PNG will open its embassy next week, a move breaking with most countries which have their embassies in Tel Aviv. Israel claims Jerusalem as its capital, while the Palestinians claim the city's eastern parts as the capital of a future Palestinian state. Professor Stephen Ratuva is director of the Macmillan Brown Centre for Pacific Studies at the University of Canterbury and he spoke to Mackenzie Smith.
4: Israel has been, uh, particularly through the evangelical movements in the Pacific, has been mushrooming. it's been, it's been uh, expanding uh, phenomenally in the last uh, uh, decade or so. And uh, the groups from the Pacific going to Israel and the link to the American um, you know, evangelical movements and the Trump, of course, the Trump movement, uh, all interconnected. It's a, it's a global phenomenon, in fact. So one of the winners of this uh, uh, growth of evangelical movement is Israel, uh, because of the way in which uh, the narratives from even the evangelical movement uh, support Zionism and support Israel as being the center of uh, the second coming of Christ and all those. So uh, although uh, people might see that as a uh, bunch of uh, religious nonsense, but it does have a lot of uh, powerful political and ideological impact on the way in which um, a relationship with Israel is being framed. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's one. And secondly, Israel has been doing its own diplomatic uh, um, maneuvers around the region. Uh, those countries which voted against the uh, resolution not to set up the embassy uh, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, the leaders, they went to Israel. They were entertained because they also voted for Israel. Uh, during the uh, Palestine vote uh, some years back. I think it was 2008. Um, And uh, so, yes, there has been uh, this uh, pro-Israel, if you like, connections in the Pacific and diplomatically uh, linked to politics, linked to the evangelical movements.
0: Is it fair to say Israel will be looking for broader recognition in the Pacific of its claims over Jerusalem?
4: Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's nothing new. Uh, both China and uh, and Taiwan have been doing that in the Pacific, particularly Taiwan, looking for recognition. I'm both of them looking for recognition which one is the more legitimate representation of uh, of China, whether Taiwan or the People's Republic of China. And there's money involved as well. And Israel's uh, uh, bid for recognition also involves a lot of things, like promise of development, uh, like they've done to Fiji, and uh, other countries in the region as well, and and a lot of things associated with that in terms of uh, the buyout, you know, the the, the, the uh, so-called checkbook diplomacy.
0: And do you think Israel is going to have much success in the Pacific?
4: It's already having success in terms of uh, you know getting the Pacific countries to the four of them in in the Micronesian block to vote uh, um, against that particular resolution. And uh, they have been consistent in the support of uh, Israel. And uh, now Papua New Guinea uh, has joined the, uh, the group, and uh, Fiji has been talking about it. So, uh, um, so there's going to be a lot of international response to that in terms of condemnation, uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, subtle diplomatic political sanctions and so forth. And that's something which countries uh, in the Pacific should uh, recognize. Because uh, there may be other reasons as well why, apart from the ideological, apart from the religious aspects to it. It's to do with money. And the small island states, uh, sometimes they're looking out for opportunities to be able to generate money by uh, engaging in uh, political actions which um, may not uh, be in line with the rest of the
1: world. That was Professor Stephen Ratuva from the University of Canterbury. Supporting development in the Pacific through sports. That is the mission of a 27-year-old Ni Vanuatu woman. Former cricketer and women in leadership participant Melissa Melissa farre is studying in Australia and is with Team Up, an Australian government program that encourages sport as a way to bring Pacific people together. Her dream job is to help women and children through sports and she joins me now on the line. Melissa, good morning to you.
6: Good morning. How
1: are you? I'm um, well, thank you. Now, I guess just firstly, what uh, what exactly is the aim of your work?
6: Um, well, uh, I suppose at the moment uh, it's to just try and address as many social issues and health issues within uh, specific communities at the moment. Um, and, yeah, to try and use sport as a platform um, to addressing these issues and, um, yeah, using using sport as a uh a positive, positive, positive tool within um our communities because like you know you know in the Pacific sports is so deep, deeply ingrained within our Pacific cultures. So I think that is just the best way and the most effective way to to help people bring people together uh and also at the same time uh, gives us the opportunity to uh address these issues and this could be in um addressing uh non-communicable diseases, which are lifestyle diseases within the Pacific, uh, gender-based violence or um, other social issues within the Pacific.
1: Yeah, fantastic. So you're working uh, with Team Up, which is a, an Australian government program. Can you talk a, a little bit about the, uh, the the projects and the work that you guys carry out?
6: Yeah, um, so with Team Up, we currently... Uh, uh, Team Up is a, a sport for development program, an Australian uh, sport for development program, which is uh, currently running in six Pacific countries. Um, and uh, it is uh, it is run with uh, in partnership with uh, sports organizations in uh, the Pacific countries where um, we help uh, sports organizations to facilitate sport for development programs to address um the areas of change and social change or health that they would like to address. Um, Some of the sports that we are currently partnered with, uh, for example, um, AFL in Vanuatu, um, cricket in Samoa, in Vanuatu basketball in Papua New Guinea, um, netball, um, cricket in Fiji as well, Um, Get Into Rugby Plus in Fiji, in Samoa, yeah, so we partner with sporting organisations uh, in Samoa, Fiji, uh, Vanuatu, Tonga, uh, and we've just expanded into Solomon Islands this year uh, and uh, in the uh, design process of uh, uh, the programmes as well. So, um, uh, yeah, we uh, help sport, sports organisations and sports federations within the Pacific to help set up the development programmes um and to implement them and to make sure that they achieve achieve the best uh, development goals that they want to achieve through their sports.
1: Excellent and um yeah look can you give us uh, some examples of uh, of how you guys do that and uh, and yeah particularly uh, I guess uh, who these programs target. Well.
6: I- I'm from Vanuatu, so I, I, some of the uh, uh, best examples that I can give would be from Vanuatu. So, uh, for example, like in, in Vanuatu, we with Vanuatu Cricket, for example, uh, Cricket has, uh, Vanuatu Cricket's sport development programs are called Cricket Iblong Everyone, which is uh, translated into Cricket is for Everyone. Um, and it is trying to promote the message that cricket is for everyone and we can use cricket to achieve so many different things. Uh, It's cricket is not just to be played at an elite level. Um, And within that program, there is a program for uh, disability inclusion. Uh, There is a program for, uh, there is a women's island cricket program, which uh, targets well and addresses uh, um, women in communities and the issues that they face in communities with uh, health uh, and helping them with uh, improving their lifestyle and the lifestyle of their families and their lifestyle communities Uh, and also in that same program there is appeal against violence which uh, addresses gender-based violence so um, we with team up we provide the resources and the technical support to help uh, the staff of the organizations because you know in the pacific as it, it it is Uh, uh, resources and staffing is one of the key issues to ensure that the implementations of the programs happen uh, because a lot of the organizations are run by former athletes who are very passionate about the sport and want to continue to drive the sport forward and to use the sport for a positive good. So uh, we help with providing resources to ensure that these programs happen. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, one of the great examples from from that I have experienced and I have witnessed is uh, the Kregatiblong Everyone program, which is happening in Vanuatu at the, uh, at the moment.
1: Yeah, it is awesome when sport, um, you know, can be used to to address social issues and, and not just be used as something to, to you know, notch wins and losses. Now, I know one of the outcomes uh, of this program, as you just mentioned, is to attract uh, women, girls and, and people with disability to sport. Uh, are they um, underrepresented uh, within sport in the Pacific?
6: yes um in currently in the pacific uh women uh people with uh, disability are very underrepresented uh in in a lot of sports, uh, there there has been. And having said that, there are, there has been a lot of improvement and a lot of changes within uh, within sport in the last couple of years, and I think that is mostly due to a lot of the efforts that, that have been put into uh, ensuring that we get more inclusion and in and, and because of the programs like uh, like. The, with the work that Team Up is also uh, doing as well within the Pacific, to ensure that we are addressing the, these area of needs, and that has that has uh, made a lot of improvements. But I think that there is still uh, a lot to do in the Pacific, and a lot more uh, representation that needs to be t- done in terms of bringing women into sports and bringing more people. Uh, uh, promoting more disability inclusion in sport, because there is a lot of opportunities for women in sport. There is a lot of opportunities in, in parasport as well. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a lot more room for representation and I think that as, uh, as, as Pacific Islanders and as Pacific athletes and specific sports, we, we, we can do a, a lot better.
1: Yeah, and look, you would have seen a lot of this uh, as a, as a former high level play high level player of cricket yourself. Is um is that kind of what inspired you to get to get into this work? Your experience as a player.
6: Um. Yeah, my experience as a player. I I started working before I actually played my uh, professionally for Vanuatu. Uh, but my I think playing just gave me pushed me a little bit by uh, um, a lot more um, because it was very challenging to um, I think people don't really realize how hard it is to to play elite sport in in the Pacific as well because we you when you play elite sport in the Pacific you don't actually get paid to to do that it's it's you do it because you love the sport and as women that's that's uh, that's how a lot of um, elite sport and the Pacific uh, currently happen. You play it, play the sport because you love the sport. Um, so I think that that's what pushed me to continue to to stay and work in that space and to want to help um, motivate me to want to um, to do my work within that space as well. Because I think that there are a lot of missed opportunities as well for women, not just for women, but for young people as well uh, within within sport because sport is. Is um, something that can change a lot of people's lives within the Pacific as well, and, and bring a lot of people and provide a lot of careers for a lot of people as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 such a huge industry. It goes so far beyond, you know, players, players and coaches. Um, I mean, I'd know spending spending years as a, as a sports journalist, but yeah, I mean, what what kind of uh, jobs and, and careers would you like to provide to, to young people?
6: Well, firstly, as as athletes, like I would love to see. Uh, uh, Pacific athletes, you know, playing sport as a career, um, and for sport not just to be seen as you know leisurely activity within the Pacific, um, but then outside of that, you know, in for, for sport to be promoted to school where there's career pathways to it. You can get a a job in sport as a coach. You can get a job in sport as a, a in sports management. You can get a a, a job as a physio. Um, and in all these different types of um there are so many different types of jobs that you can get um through through sport um that are not being promoted um because at the moment sport is just seen as um uh, an uh of um an activity for leisure within I, i'm speaking from from my experience with going to school and, uh, in Vanuatu and, and growing up in Vanuatu. But, yeah, um, there are so many athletes that, you know, come through the sport as well and have very good opportunities to become good coaches that don't have the opportunity to, to, to further, further that. And so, yeah, I think that there is a lot of opportunity there um, to, to give them that opportunity and especially if you get young people that don't have the opportunity to finish their education as well uh, and have fallen uh, on sport as a way out to make a, a better life for themselves.
1: Uh, Melissa, I completely, uh, completely agree. Um, that's all we've got time for today, unfortunately, but thanks so much, uh, for joining us on the show. And hey, look, I'm sure you're watching, but good luck to Vanuatu in the uh, T20 East Asia, um, Pacific Qualifier this week, this week as well.
6: Yes, um, thank you very much. I'm really, really hoping that this time Vanuatu goes through and gets to the next stage of the World Cup qualifiers.
1: Absolutely. Uh, thanks for joining us. That was former Vanuatu cricketer Melissa Fare sharing her work with the Australian Government Program Team Up that encourages sport as a way to bring Pacific people together. And that does bring us to the end uh, of Pacific Beat today. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6 a.m. PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time. Stay tuned on ABC Radio Australia, though, because the news is next. We get all the top stories and followed by Nisha Daily. You'll find our top stories on our website. Just type Pacific Beat and Radio Australia into your search engine or via the Pacific. ABC Pacific page. Again, I'm Kyle Evans. Thank you very much for joining me today.